Welcome to Brains Matter, the podcast on science, curiosities, and general knowledge. I'm your host, just an ordinary guy. I have Diana Lewis with us again from the University of Melbourne, so welcome to the show once more. Good to be here again. <laughs> so you're becoming a bit of a regular on this show now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the work you're doing in sexual health. So could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? So I work in a large group and uh, we're all looking at chlamydia control. So chlamydia is a very common sexually transmitted infection. It's actually the most common bacterial sexually transmitted infection in the world, but especially in um, in Western countries, it's uh, around, well, in Australia, there are around 5% of young people who, who have chlamydia. Mm-hmm. And the rates have slowly been tracking up over the last few years. And there's, it's a very easy disease to, or infection to test for. So a simple urine sample at the GP mm-hmm. and then a, a amplification of the DNA specific to um, chlamydia is performed in the lab and um, a single dose of antibiotic cures it. One of the things that's difficult about chlamydia is that it uh, most people who have it, about 80% of people who, who are infected with chlamydia have no idea that they have chlamydia and so that means that they can very easily and unknowingly pass the inf- infection on to their sexual partners and it's it's always been you know this surely is an easy infection to get a hold of mm-hmm. like to really drive the rates back down i guess it's the 80 percent which is that the problem in that yeah that's right it, that's right and so the idea is that you know if people don't know that they've got a problem then you need to screen them mm-hmm. uh, when they are asymptomatic and just screen them as a good measure of preventive health care just as you would screen for say high blood pressure in in older people or diabetes and that sort of thing so you know maybe young people should be doing these preventive health things and if we test all young people once a year then surely that should you know pick up the cases and and we can treat them and uh, and you know get the prevalence down um, but the thing is that we don't really know. No one really knows the best way of doing that. So uh, the study that I work on is a large randomised control trial. We've uh, recruited GPs from 52 towns across Australia, mostly rural towns, and half of those towns, we're basically harassing them, (laughs) harassing the doctors to try and get them to increase their chlamydia testing rates. And then the other half, we're just saying, oh, you know, go about your business, do as you normally do. Mm. And the hope is that after three or four years of of this um, intervention, is what we call it, then hopefully the towns that are in the intervention group will have lower rates of chlamydia in their population. What are the symptoms of someone who has it? Um, And then secondly, what are the ways it's transmitted? So symptoms, as I mentioned, 80% won't have any symptoms whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the small number of people who do have symptoms, um, it'll be like a 
a discharge or for women it can actually cause quite severe pelvic pain if the if the infection it usually sits on the cervix which is at the top of the vagina and if the infection goes into the uterus it can cause the the immune reaction to that infection can cause a lot of scarring and mm. in fact that's one of the Does ways that, lead to that infertility that's right yeah mm. so one of the one of the reasons that people are concerned about chlamydia is because the long-term health consequences of infection can be quite drastic so people can have pelvic inflammatory disease which is when the infection's in the uterus and but that can also cause long-term pelvic pain, mm. chronic pelvic pain, and also if there's lots of scarring then it can cause infertility where all of the fallopian tubes get blocked and no eggs can can go through those tubes. Um, or it can cause scarring so that when an egg gets fertilized in the tube then it creates an ectopic pregnancy which is actually a medical emergency it's quite a, a dangerous a, a dangerous situation yeah so dealing with those kind of fertility conditions further down the track is very expensive in light mm. of the fact that it it's can be so, so easy mm. to test for and treat so yeah we really want to catch it when it's early stop it being spread for for men, there's not so there's not such clear evidence that um, that there are long term health consequences. I think there are a couple of studies that show that you know potentially uh, fertility is decreased for men, but certainly nothing as drastic as for women. Um, but in both men and women, um, you can in, like if you've got chlamydia, then you are more at risk of catching other uh, sexually transmitted infections like HIV. Mm-hmm. And gonorrhea and things like that, because basically, if you're if you're fighting more than one infection, you're not mm-hmm. going to do terribly Your well. Body runs down. Yeah, so so chlamydia is uh, transmitted from one person to another um, through sexual intercourse, uh, oral as well as as vaginal, uh, as well as anal, and it's very readily passed. I'm I'm not sure exactly what the uh, percentages are, but it's something like sixty, like two thirds. There's, there's a 66% chance that uh, if two people have slept with each other, you know, a couple of times or whatever, then the, it's going to be transmitted. Mm-hmm. So if you compare that to a uh, to HIV, um, the, the rate is far, far lower with HIV, but uh, obviously the consequences are potentially far, far greater. So mm-hmm. Once you get the, the data back from these GPs, what are you looking for specifically in that? Yeah, so uh, some of the main information that we're collecting is um, is chlamydia testing rates. So we basically have a data collection tool that anonymously or de-identifies information from um, the clinic software and tells us, you know, for example, for a particular GP, how what percentage of young people are they actually testing? Because you really want to get the testing rates up high enough for there to be for for you to see any difference in transmission in the community at the community level Mm -hmm. and it's just like a vaccination program in a way I mean in order to protect to have a protective effect at the community level you need to hit enough people Mm -hmm. so we're collecting that data but we've also so before the uh, intervention period which is when we're trying to harass them to increase their testing rates before that started we had a uh, we did a very large prevalence survey we tested over 4,200 odd young people so we actually hired research assistants to go out and sit in the waiting rooms of these GP clinics around Australia 
and and they recruited consecutive young people coming in the door and said oh are you visiting the GP today we're doing this study would you like to have a chlamydia test while you're here so we didn't rely on the GPs to recruit the patients mm -hmm. for us because we wanted to get that representative sample so that meant that we you know really wanted to get every per you know consecutive people over a period of time and we did this in all of the clinics and um, yeah it was interesting we certainly confirmed that um, a large number of people who were infected were not at all visiting their doctor for a sexual health related consultation they had they, they were asymptomatic mm -hmm. uh, so I think that you know confirms that by targeting people opportunistically when they're maybe not looking for an STI check is mm. a good idea. And, and so we'll do another one of those prevalent surveys at the end of the intervention period and, and that's how we will compare uh, whether there's been a difference in mm -hmm. the control group versus the intervention group. So you mentioned earlier that the, the rates of um, chlamydia as an STI have been increasing over the years. Given that there's been a huge push around contraception, you, you would have thought that would have had an effect. What's the relationship there? Well, I think definitely in um, the late 80s there, there, was, there were a lot of people using contraception mm -hmm. and that was because in Australia at least, or around the world, but certainly in Australia we had very effective AIDS campaigns. The, the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper. Mm -hmm. A lot of people grew, grew up with the Grim Reaper and they were like, gosh, how many people am I sleeping with when I'm sleeping with this one person? Mm -hmm. And they were, very, um, they were very effective ads. And I think also just the reality of seeing people dying of a sexually transmitted infection, I think that effect is wearing off. And a lot of, and this is the case for a lot of, a lot of STIs, is that you, get a, you had a dip at the end of the 80s. Things are slowly creeping back up. So there are two things that are conf well, there are a couple of things that are sort of confusing that picture. Firstly, rising rates don't necessarily mean an increase in the amount of people that have it because you could just be testing for more. There were over eighty thousand people in Australia that were notified to the health department as being diagnosed with chlamydia, but that could be because we're testing more people, mm. just finding more of what's already out there. So a little bit like observational bias in astronomy, they're, they're finding. All large hot Jupiters because that's what They're the instruments for. can detect it. Yeah, the other yeah. ones are too small. Yeah, that's right. But this randomised control trial is, it was in a unique position when, when it was started because other countries around the world were testing for chlamydia too much for them to know whether, to, to detect any difference. So we were in a unique position where our GPs weren't testing very many people and mm -hmm. I think a study from just a couple of years ago shows that young people, you know, 15 to 25, you know, very less than 10% were, were test, being tested by their GP and more women get tested than men generally. But our study is really trying to target everyone. I mean, everyone can pass it on, so mm -hmm. everyone <laughs> needs to be tested if you want to have an impact on, um, on chlamydia control. If someone's 
been tested, they've found that they've had it, they've taken um, the antibiotics and gotten rid of it, can they catch it again? Absolutely, and uh, something like, I think it's over 25, oh sorry, over 20%, I think it's about 22% of people who are diagnosed and treated with chlamydia are reinfected within a year, and part of that is because their partners aren't treated mm -hmm. as well. And in fact, there was, um, there was an article published in the Medical Journal of Australia by some of our colleagues, um, Christopher Fairley from the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre was, I think, the senior author, and it was about legalising patient-delivered partner therapy. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you go into the GP and you're diagnosed with chlamydia, then yeah. the doctor can... Here's medicine for you, here's some medicine for your partner. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And there are some, P some GPs who do this anyway because they're pragmatic. They're mm -hmm. like, well, you've got chlamydia, chances are your partner's got chlamydia. And if they're reluctant to come in or... Or even just you know let's say let's save the whole trip, you know, and deliver the therapy through the patient. But it is a bit of a legal grey area, and mm. and certainly some GPs are reluctant to to do that because of that legal issue. So what are you hoping to see at the end of this intervention period? What what are you hoping the data will look like? Yeah. So ideally, what we'll see is that uh, the the control arm of the study will have considerably more <laughs> cases of chlamydia than what the intervention arm has. And it is very difficult because I think the first real obstacle is getting GPs to change their behaviour. And, mm -hmm. you know, GPs are very time poor as it is. And so asking them to remember an additional thing and get them to squeeze it in, especially on top of a consultation where most of the time you're asking them to do it where the patients come in for an entirely unrelated mm -hmm. um, reason. It, it is a big ask and, and I think that's the hardest thing that we're finding. You know, we've, we can give the, the doctors tools like computer reminders and education and, and, and things like that that can help them remember, but it's still... Yeah, it, it's still difficult to to really get that change, especially when GPs have been, I guess, doing doing things the way they've been doing them for a long time. Do you think there needs to be a a public educational push or a advertising push? Because we've seen it with you know, pe people getting checked for breast cancer, prostate cancer. The cancer gets mm. a lot of attention, mm. but you don't see it so much with other infections. So the cancers get the big one, but the infections don't get so much of it. Yeah, I think there are there are definitely health promotion um, efforts in in various places, you know, statewide. But they're mostly, I guess, they're mostly focused on you know waiting room posters and that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, those definitely will help. But I think there's nothing quite as powerful as a GP saying, yeah. saying, yeah. And and I think you know one of the things that we want to see is that like the the good thing is we can say to the doctors, look you're not making a judgment on what you think that that patient has been up to. You're simply saying, oh, look, you're in this age group. On that basis alone, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're in a high-risk group. And, and we can also say, look, tell the patients that, you know, these are the, the recommendations from, from the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. So... It doesn't need to be a personal thing. I think a lot of GPs are worried that, you know, oh, but I, I'm not comfortable talking about someone's sexual history. It's like, forget about their sexual history. 
you don't need to know their sexual history. If they're in this age group, they're at risk. That's, that's all you need to say. And I think patients also have, have reflected that as long as they feel that they're being offered the test, you know, in a way where they don't feel that they've been profiled as being some sort of sexual deviant, <laughs> then they're happy to do it. You know. So what would be, um, I know this is probably a how long is a piece of string question, but what would be an acceptable rate you know, if we have these education programs, these uh, GPs following the, um, the process that's coming through this intervention, where, what would be, you know, you know, obviously zero is the, the ultimate goal, but what would be what the What would be the practical? Rate? It's a good question. I don't, um, you know, the hard thing with a, with a condition like chlamydia that is already quite prevalent and very easily spread. I mean, we study, we've gone into rural towns specifically because we like to think that they represent a closed sexual network. Mm -hmm. But anyone would know that people in a country town aren't just sleeping with people in that country town. People travel, they mm -hmm. travel to other cities in Australia, they travel outside of Australia. And so the problem is certainly more complex than just even if you take the whole country of Australia in this isolated little system, you know, if we get the rate down to 1%, that would be great because I think really it's something that is a managed condition and you're always going to need that preventive health focus there because I imagine that you know in 10 years time there could there will as much as we try to eradicate chlamydia now it's not going to happen so yeah I think it's it's just trying to instill the idea that it's a good preventive health measure for young people and there are so many preventive health measures for older people a lot of GPs are like oh something for you <laughs> something for young people that's kind of novel that's that's pretty cool but there's gonna be an app for this <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly well we are trying to get uh we are trying to get clinics to implement recall and reminder systems and and that sort of thing as well but um yeah I mean GPs are strange small businesses that are all very different from each other which is the other thing that yeah makes it a unique interesting project I should say <laughs> We'll uh, look forward to hearing the results of this. So thank you for your time today, uh, Dr. Lewis. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com as you can find all the other episodes of the show there. There's also other information on the site such as guests who've been on the show and subscription details. You can also find Brains Matter on YouTube, so make sure you like and subscribe if you're a YouTube listener. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash brainsmatter and signing up to one of the options there. Or you can donate either once off or regularly via PayPal. All you need to do is click on one of the PayPal donation options on the right hand side of the website. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage or on YouTube 
or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the Brains Matter website. The theme music Soul of the Machine was composed and performed by Clive Weeks and is used with his permission. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now.